Hello, I'm Daniel Jurgen, uh, Vice Chairman of S&P Global, and I'm here with two of my colleagues, Mohsen Bonak-Dapur, who is Executive Director of uh, Economic and Country Risk uh, at S&P Global, and John Mothersall, who's the Director for Non-Ferrous Metal uh, Analysis at S&P Global. Our topic today is our new study, which is called The Future of Copper. Will a coming supply gap short circuit the energy transition, a very timely question. Uh, this was a subject that we discussed in terms of top uh, minerals and uh, copper at uh, Sierra Week uh, 2022, and we'll be talking further about it in 2023. But the origins of this study, in a sense, the urgency go back really for me to uh, my book, The New Map, where I talked about, uh, as we talk about an energy transition, we're going to see a shift uh, from what's always called, particularly when gasoline prices are high, uh, petrol prices are high, uh, what's called big oil to uh, big shovels, because there'll be a lot of more mining that will be required uh, for uh, meeting uh, the needs of energy transition in terms of the uh, energy technologies. And uh, we've seen increasing attention to this on the part of governments. We've seen studies from the US government, the European Union, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the International Energy Agency, all expressing great alarm as to whether the minerals will be there that are necessary for the energy transition. Uh, the, the IEA, the International Energy Association, summed it up this way. They talked about uh, a shift from an energy, uh, a fuel intensive to a mineral intensive energy system. And, uh, and now we've seen that the US and the EU and a number of other countries have gotten together for what they're calling a mineral security partnership to focus on the same question. Well, what we wanted to do was go beyond the alarm, the concern and quantify uh, what the issues are. We chose copper because copper is a metal of electrification. And so much of the energy transition is about uh, electrifying, moving to electrification. And, uh, and so we really saw copper as essential. And we saw also that, that there's a traditional growth of copper, which is pervasive, of course, ac across economies. But we saw this new demand for copper that wasn't there before, what we call energy transition demand. And that's what we sought to understand and then to understand the supply. And I'll just jump to the conclusion, which is that we saw in order to achieve the goals of net zero emissions by 2050, using various scenarios, including looking at the International Energy Agency scenario, we would need to see a doubling, a doubling of world copper supply by the year 2035. This kind of increase has never happened before. And so what we wanted to do was to understand why that demand increase would be required, and then what the supply uh, response will be, and uh, whether there'll be a shortfall. And I'll just say, before I turn to my colleagues, that we came up with two scenarios, one called uh, high ambition, maybe we should call it very high ambition, and the other called rocky road. Uh, very high, high ambition assumes that things go very well. Rocky road is basically a continuation of the trends that we're on today. 
So that's the um, framework for our study. Let me turn first to Mosin and just to sort of say, how in your mind uh, did this study uh, evolve? Yeah, so this study evolved uh, during past year or so, um, as many of us got together and thought about all the agencies and uh, organizations that have shown a lot of interest in, in uh, assessing and showing the importance of the mineral on global basis for energy transition. And we thought, as you mentioned, Dan, we should start with copper because it's the base metal and mineral for energy transition. And it is very uh, versatile all over different technologies. And uh, the importance of it well, is really on global basis and across different sectors. So that's how we started doing the research right. and thinking about well, bringing that into Yeah. So Mosin, let me ask you then to kind of give us a picture of, uh, of, the, of what we saw as what are the components of this energy transition demand? Yeah, of course, we had to choose um, basically a scenario from S&P Global that shows a net zero emission by 2050. That was our goal. And uh, the scenario that we chose was uh, multi-tech mitigation, which is very much in, li in line with IEA scenario and also US uh, Biden administration scenario as well too. All, all three of them basically reach net zero emission by 2050. Once we took that, there is a lot of insight and, uh, uh, and, and foundation from different divisions across S&P Global that bring into play the intensity of usage of coppers and other minerals across different sectors, such as uh, solar, wind, automotive, and uh, transmission and distribution. The, the, the perspective and the platform basically allow us to estimate the required copper across those industries or energy, energy transition technologies and estimate the growth of copper requirement from current to 2035 and finally 2050. So let me ask you uh, one specific one that really stood out, uh, the, the most important growth, you know, which technology? Yeah, of course, growth-wise, some of the wind and solar uh, showed tremendous amount of growth over the next 12 years, but they are starting very from a very small base. On level basis, when you look at the copper requirement across all technologies, there is no question that automotive and EVs right. specifically are going to require majority of the copper going forward up to 2035 and again after that to 2050, uh, followed by uh, transmission and distribution that requires quite a bit copper. Right. Well, so let me uh, ask you, I mean, I was very struck that the typical new EV, I think the number is it's two and a half times more copper than uh, an, a conventional car. Exactly. That's what we estimated as well, too, that the requirement for, for copper is around two and a half times that goes into the EV than the conventional cars because it's not only the battery, it's quite a bit outside of the battery, the engine itself and the wiring within the car that requires quite a bit copper. Yeah, 
I guess the other one that was quite striking is offshore wind, and offshore wind is the new frontier for uh, wind technology. That's exactly right. Majority of the cabling from offshore wind is all copper, and the more as we go into the future, the distance from those panels to the shore will increase, hence the requirement for offshore wind mm -hmm. is going to be more and more as we go closer to 2050. So Mosin, you've been involved in a lot of economic studies and you've seen a lot of economic studies and certainly a lot in this uh, area of energy transition. Kind of what, in your mind, what differentiates this study from uh, other studies and reports? Yeah, the importance of it, I think, is basically the diversity of the divisions and knowledge and expertise that we have in S&P Global. We are not only economists that are focusing on, on, on this study. There are electrical engineers from our energy team. There are automotive specialists from our mobility team. There are chemical engineers from our chemical team and also country risk. Uh, political analysts from our country risk team, the you know, integration of, of these expertise and knowledge is something very, very unique in this study that it's not available anywhere else. Yeah, I think that's one of the things to me that makes this study so impactful and differentiates it. And, you know, there are many call, you know, scenarios that say, and we want, you know, here's what we want to get to this in 2050. But the, that's the what, but at the how, how you get there very much depends upon materials. And of course, people think wind and solar, the sun is free and the wind is free, but you know, you sure need a lot of uh, minerals, metals to go into the equipment to achieve it. And people don't think that, you know, even solar panels involve a lot of, uh, of, uh, of copper wiring. One of the things that's, you know, struck me is that whether you're talking about solar panels, let's say on people's roofs or, uh, automobile charging stations, it's, a, it's an infrastructure issue. It's not just the, the charger, for instance, but it's the whole wiring to get the electricity to the charger that, that is, is part of the picture. Exactly, that's correct, yes. Yeah, well, so we said um, demand doubles from 25 to almost uh, 50 million metric tons by 2035, uh, and then continues to grow. By my counting, uh, 2035 is about 12 years from now. And one of the things that strikes me about mining, and even I think about it comparing to the oil industry, is it has a much longer time frame. It may be the industry with the longest time frame of any industry. So let me turn to to John now. You've been uh, you've been studying copper and both copper market analyzing it, copper pricing for you know quarter century now. So uh, you understand the market very well. What are the implications of this study for the copper market? Yeah. So, I mean, what comes out and was, it was pretty striking. I think it was understood that this market, the copper market, looks potentially tight fundamentally going forward because of this anticipated uh, uh, surge in demand. But our study really quantifies how big this wave of demand is going to be. And, and it really represents a challenge for the supply side of the industry to be able to match this, this pending increase in, uh, in demand growth. So, so why don't you know, people just go out and open new mines? 
Well, therein lies the problem. Uh, you know, it, 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 back in the 1950s, the U.S. Geologic Survey lamented the length of time it took to bring an identified ore body into production. And at the time, uh, the complaint was it was taking three to four years. Today, uh, it takes about an average of 16 years from, from that initial discovery to defining the ore body, to developing a feasibility study, a bankable feasibility study that can then attract investors. And then turning from that and going through all the permitting that's required uh, in, in, in whatever jurisdiction, you know, the mine happens, it will be located, uh, and then to actual construction of the mine in production. So, yeah, I mean, uh, to me, uh, it was striking to see that whatever part of the world you were talking about, the permitting process never gets shorter, it always gets longer. Right. right. And I mean, it can be the permitting itself can be measured in years and challenged and yeah. litigation and then more years. So that it doesn't, uh, you know, you're not going to, and what is it? It's about $6 billion for a major new mine. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. A, it's a large investment, yeah, to say the yeah. least. Yeah. So. And, you know, if you're committing that over 15 years, I guess one of the things you want is predictability. Yeah, sort of the, the operating environment, the operational environment with, you know, the various uh, competing, not competing interests, but the, the various stakeholders that are involved uh, in, in the mining process from indigenous communities, uh, tax and royalty regimes, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, other national concerns, uh, you know, that creates this overlapping set of requirements um, that, you know, over the course of the, the past 30 years or so have really lengthened the process by, by which a mine comes into production. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, many of the people watching don't have uh, a sense of the geography of, of copper in terms of where it's mined, where it's smelted, and then a subsequent right. process refined into, uh, into uh, pure copper. It go, you know, the, you know, you get a, a, an ore and it may have 1% or less copper in it. And at the end of the day, you need it to be 99% copper or more yeah. to be used in something. So can you say something about the geography involved in that? Sure. So you can think of the Pacific Rim, the Ring of Fire, as, as geologically being a copper-rich zone. Um, but there are two real production centers today, South America uh, Peru and Chile in particular, and then the, uh, the, the what I'll call the traditional copper belt in Africa, Congo, um, and Zambia. Uh, one of the interesting things, you know, I, I don't think people realize this, you know, we're, we're, we think of the oil market as being highly concentrated, but what is it, uh, uh, three or four uh, companies or countries? Yeah. Is well, it three? Yeah, well, three. Before, before, yeah, let me jump in there. Before yeah. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, because things are changing, three countries, the US, Saudi Arabia, and Russia accounted for 40% of world right. crude oil production. Yeah. And in copper, two countries, Peru and Chile, represent 38% of mine production. So that just gives you some perspective. This is a more concentrated industry. Uh, and, and, and that's at the mine level. Then when we move to the smelting and refining is sort of the next stage down in the production process. It's really China that dominates, and China's responsible for you know upwards of forty-five percent of refined production. So, you have a concentration in 
in in mining and then a concentration in 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 refining two different areas right so i mean wherever in the world you know mining involves relations with governments either for permission or because the government is your partner right and uh so there's this whole political complexity to it so john we have um two forecasts we have high ambition shorthand very high ambition and we have uh, Rocky Road. Uh, can you say something just explaining the two scenarios and where each comes out in terms of meeting the kind of numbers that Mosin has talked about sure. to be recorded by 2035? So you mentioned Rocky Road is uh, sort of a continuation of current trends, high ambition. We really put the industry to the test. We, we actually, we, we specifically assumed some parameters or made some assumptions that would really drive a strong supply side response. And what was interesting, what really leapt out of the, of the analysis was that in either scenario, didn't matter which scenario you picked, you're still gonna see very sizable shortfalls um, when we look out over, especially just the next 10 or 15 years, um, just some numbers. But the largest deficit ever recorded in the copper market was, was um, was seen in 2004, and, and the shortfall, the deficit was just under a million metric tons. We'll round it up to a million metric tons. Even under high ambition, where we really assume a vigorous supply side response in terms of capacity utilization and recycling, we still see four years where the annual deficit between 2025 and 2035, or 2040, excuse me, will be more than a million metric tons. The largest shortfall in high ambition will be 1.6 million metric tons. So almost, you know, 50% larger than, than the, high, the largest deficit yet recorded. In Rocky Road, the deficits become staggering uh, to the point where the market simply wouldn't allow these shortfalls to, to exist. And, 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 but- How, how big? Uh, as much as 9 million metric tons in 2035. So that's, a, um, that's like a 20% uh, shortfall. Yeah, an order of magnitude different than anything we've ever seen. Um, you know, so it, it just highlights you know, the challenges the industry is facing or will so, be facing. So what are the elements? Okay, copper supply is going to you know, increase under any either scenario, either Rocky right. Road, which after all is a continuation of concurrent trends yeah. or high ambition. So- you know, what are the sources of supply? How's it, what are the elements that give you supply? So it, it, it's, um, you know, how much mine capacity do you have, how hard you work those mines, and then what, what the industry refers to as the above ground mine, uh, secondary production, that is material recovered from scrap. I.e. Uh, recycling, recycling, recycling exactly, yes. exactly. So under Rocky Road, again, a continuation of current trends, Utilization rates, rough number, uh, are about 80, mine utilization rates are about 84%. That's and, actually and, slightly higher. Yeah. And ex just explain what, what you mean by mine utilization. That, that's output against the rated capacity of the mine. I'm sorry, I sort of jumped ahead real quick. Yeah. So utilization rates in, in Rocky Road, again, reflecting the average of the past 10 years or so, about 84%, which is actually slightly higher than the last couple of years. Mine production has really been affected by the pandemic, especially in South America. So we actually see a slight improvement in Rocky Road from the, the experience of the past couple of years. 
uh, in high ambition, we have a utilization rate. Uh, we assume a, a utilization rate of well above 90%, which reflects the peak years that we've seen, the peak years in, uh, in, in terms of utilization that we've seen in some countries over periods of time historically. And we've never seen that across the industry as a total. Right, for an extended period of time. Uh, yeah. But that's the assumption in high ambition. And we match that in high ambition with a recycling rate that is recycling or secondary production as a percentage of total production of about 26% when we get out into the 2030s. That's 10 percentage point, almost 10 percentage points higher than what we see today, 17%, which is the assumption in Rocky Road. So you can see in high ambition, we really push the supply side of the industry. And even under those very optimistic assumptions, we're still seeing very significant shortfalls um, over the next 10 years, next 15 yeah. years. Yeah, the recycling question is very interesting because of course recycling means gathering up, you know, and a mine is concentrated, it's there. Recycling, yeah. it's, you need a gathering process. But, you know, we, I saw there was quite, there's been quite intense media coverage of our study and I see one in a publication that I didn't know existed called Recycling. <laughs> that they, were, they were quite interested in this. Before I go back to Mosin, let me ask you one other question that may be on some people's minds. Uh, minds, M-I-N-D-S, not M-I-N-E-S <laughs> to just clarify. Right. Um, that is that uh, uh, we talk about basically a tight market and a tight market suggests prices higher than they are today. And maybe you want to right. talk about that. But some will notice that actually uh, copper prices have been going down rather dramatically right. since yeah. March. What's going on here, John? So what the market is now pricing in is at least a mild recession globally and in, in, in manufacturing globally. So we had all-time record an all-time record high price set in the immediate aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, $10,730 a metric ton on the London Metals Exchange. And yesterday's price was 7,300, a little higher than that, but a significant correction. And it reflects this, um, the bearish sentiment that's come over the market in, in the past couple of months because of uh, the COVID lockdowns in China, which have disrupted manufacturing activity there, but also the realization that central banks globally are now going to have to act much more aggressively than previously expected to tame inflation. And they're going to do that by slowing growth. Yeah. And so really it's the central banks led by the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve right. uh, that will do much to determine the near-term price. But right. we're looking out to 2035, 2050 you know, and as you say, it's a mild recession. Just before going back to Mosin, so John, just one other question. Who is Dr. Copper and why do they call Copper Dr. Copper? <laughs> so Copper gets that, that moniker because, it, uh, because it's, it's, it's changes in demand are keyed to uh, the early portions of a business cycle. So Copper always turns first in any business cycle, either for good or for bad. And hence, it has the reputation of being able to predict turning points in the economy, hence the, you know, the doctor of economics or the, the mineral that has a doctorate in economics because it forecasts so well. Right. And it's interesting because uh, if I look at the message of Dr. Copper, as opposed to uh, oil, uh, oil, you know, slow down, Dr. Copper seems to have a gloomier view at least yeah. of, of the near term. Yeah. It's just interesting to see. I mean, all the commodities are 
responding to the central bank uh, tightening, but uh, copper does have a particular message. Yeah. Uh, Mosin, let me go back to you. Um, as an economist, you think about substitution. What substitutes, you know, we have, you know, we talk about recycling, we've talked about greater efficiency. What about substitution for copper? Yeah, for sure. Um, and in addition to substitution, there are other probably angles to, to think about in the context of a mismatch of demand and supply. But um, aluminum is is, is the major uh, metal for substitution in, in, in the energy space in this case, and, and some non-energy space as well too. But specifically for energy transition, it's basically for long distance lines in uh, transmission rather than anything else. To some degree, I believe uh, aluminum can play a role in batteries, but definitely it's not a, a, a very strong conductor as copper and also the motor of, of the electric vehicle needs copper and aluminum does not right. have a role. Right. And so, I mean, one of the things, you know, this pretty intense research project, I know you talked to several uh, companies that are in the electricity transmission business and certainly copper is, I mean, just kind of what's your takeaway from that research? Yeah, um, they did say actually in the US specifically and probably many of the advanced economies, the uh, above the ground wires, quite a bit of them has been already turned into uh, aluminum because of the price and because of the weight and all that. But our estimate shows still copper has a tremendous amount of role in, in uh, transmission and distribution because a lot of underground lines are all still copper and, and in some cases for the sh short distance lines they're still using copper. Right and of course for local distribution systems it's copper. I mean what what we understood copper has issues about maintenance and so forth other things that it, it's not a perfect substitute by any means it has some drawbacks yeah. that copper doesn't have so uh, but, you know, certainly, you know, the one area that we can't really, you know, project is innovation, how long it's going to, and there will be an incentive for innovation, but we just match that against the time frame that innovation doesn't happen overnight. And that it's, you know, it's one thing to go from initial development and then to another to roll out. And we're talking uh, near term. Uh, and also, of course, both in mining and in electric power, there is a, uh, a caution about introducing uh, changes or new technologies because we reliability and, uh, and uh, sustainability of production are so important that you, know, you, you, you wanna be careful when you introduce new things. Uh, most of one other area we talked about in the study uh, are what we call not an operational risk, but rather operational challenges. And maybe you want to just talk about a couple of those. Yeah, exactly. In, in terms of a mismatch, we, uh, we found out um, through our research that, you know, in the context of addressing this mismatch, policy is definitely a very important factor and attribute and policy in emerging markets. We got to know a better predictable and sustainable policy there. And therefore, uh, it becomes very important to, to address that into the future. The second thing was innovation, as you mentioned it. 
and innovation on the supply side and innovation on the demand side the more cleaner way to to explore and produce copper in a much productive way new technologies can contribute to that and on the demand side the efficient use of copper uh, is is the question that comes on on my mind yeah and let me just jump in on that because of course people you know on the use side people will have an incentive to figure out how to reduce the copper input especially if uh cost is a, is a big issue that's exactly right right and the last one was the interdependency because copper in the context of only the mineral of electrification is not the only mineral right a lot of the mining companies are into mining other type of minerals which are really key in energy transition such as nickel cobalt lithium as way too so there is a relationship and interdependencies between them that needs to be addressed and considered yeah. John, let me ask you, what are the other uh, minerals that are generally found with copper? You know, the most important ones. Yeah, so you can, you know, molybdenum, cobalt, uh, zinc can be found with copper. Uh, nickel uh, can be found with copper or copper can be found with nickel. That that might awesome. be a better way to, to think of it. Um, but, but most of these ore bodies, uh, you know, there are a number of different metals within the ore body. Right. Those are the most common with copper. Right. So Mosin and uh, John, we've been very immersed in this uh, study pretty intensively for the last eight months. Uh, <laughs> as we come to our conclusion here, are there any final things that you just want to mention or that stand out from you from, you know, kind of making sense of uh, the future of copper? Maybe John and then Mosin. Sure. So, I, I mean, one of the things that you know, our, our study highlighted the real challenge on the supply side of the industry, but it was also quite clear that there's no real physical shortage of copper. When we look at the reserve base, that that is how much of the resource has been identified. It's just a question of bringing it to market or how quickly it can be brought to market. Um, yeah. Not not a question of actual physical resource yeah, scarcity. But it is, you know, as you said, that sort of a tier one mines, you yeah. know, you're looking at at least 16 years from discovery yes. to yeah. uh, to first production and yeah. maybe longer. Most in any big last minute takeaway that you want to share? Yeah, sure. Of course, you know, we did this because of the net zero emission 2050. So in order to reach that goal on a global basis, based on all the research that is out there, you know, governments and pr uh, private uh, sectors, they, they need to really move quickly, right? And address these issues that we raised here and there to make sure that, you know, clean energy is available and we, we meet all those goals and we meet basically the net zero emission by 2050. So uh, otherwise, you know, net zero gets pushed out if you, if you just can't, you can't get there physically. Exactly. So if all of those government studies uh, and international organization studies were raising alarm, I guess at the end of the day, our study is really a wake-up call about the physical reality of the energy transition, as opposed to the ambition of the energy transition, and just uh, making, you know, that, that, that these governments uh, and international organizations are quite right to focus on this issue, and we hope that we've opened a new level of discussion an understanding for it. Uh, we have done a, uh, a webinar where we lay out the conclusions uh, uh, and what we learned and uh, sh show the graphics and so forth. And so 
at the end of this Sierra uh, Week conversation, uh, there'll be the information about how to access the webinar where we lay out uh, our picture, uh, our analysis and share uh, more the quantitative nature of it, this, our graphics, and of course, information about obtaining the study itself, which is available at no cost uh, uh, at the landing page. And uh, all of that information comes with this Sierra Week conversation. So let me thank uh, Mosin, uh, let me thank John, and let me thank all of you for joining us for the Sierra Week conversation on the subject of the future of copper. Will a supply gap short circuit the energy transition? A very important subject and one that uh, all of us will continue to be following uh, in the time ahead. So thank you for being with us today.